0: presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Get in touch with Technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host Jonathan Strickland. And today I wanted to talk about something that was in the news recently, at least recently when I'm recording this episode, on February 11th, 2016. That was, of course, the day when we got the confirmation from a collaboration of scientists that, in fact, the LIGO observatory had picked up a gravitational wave. And this was huge news around the world. And, uh, in case you were wondering what the heck is this news all about? How did they pick up that gravitational wave? What, what exactly is the technology powering our sensors to detect this stuff? How does it all work? That's what this episode's all about. So, uh, this was the very first time anyone had been able to measure a gravitational wave directly. So today we're going to talk all about what that means, and how it happened. Now, to begin with, we need to lay some groundwork and to to really get an understanding of what gravitational waves are. So gravitational waves ultimately were one of the predictions made by a certain Albert Einstein uh, with his theory of general relativity. So in that theory, Einstein presented this idea that our universe is filled with space-time. If you're a fan of science fiction, you have undoubtedly come across that term. Star Trek is all about the space-time continuum, and that you got to be careful, you could rip a hole in the fabric of space-time. As far as we know, that's not really that possible. Um, I mean, black holes could sort of be that, maybe. But at any rate, space-time itself is this calling it stuff is probably the wrong way of putting it, but it is like a fabric and mass hangs inside this fabric. And by mass, I'm talking about stuff like stars or even entire solar systems or galaxies that hang in this fabric. And just like you would see in a two-dimensional display, uh it ends up curving the fabric around the mass. Uh, we often talk about this in terms of a very simple example that's easy to imagine. Uh, you get some sort of stretchy material. Often you'll just hear someone say, okay, get a trampoline. You've got a trampoline, and you put a big, heavy bowling ball on the trampoline. So that bowling ball is going to deform the trampoline surface. It's no longer going to be straight. It's going to end up curving around the bowling ball to some extent, creating kind of a, a dimple where the bowling ball has has created this uh, impression inside the trampoline. And as long as the bowling ball is there, that impression is going to stay. This is sort of the like the way space-time curves around giant masses like stars and, and black holes, things like that. Of course, we have to remember that space-time is actually four-dimensional, not a two-dimensional thing like a trampoline. I mean, I know that trampolines technically have three dimensions, but... We're really looking at a surface, so it's more like a two-dimensional plane. In reality, in space-time, it's four-dimensional because you've got the three spatial dimensions plus time. And that is a little difficult to get your head around, but uh, that's why we tend to look at this two-dimensional example. It's a lot easier for us to imagine. So let's go a little further with that analogy to kind of talk about gravity. See, Einstein proposed that gravity was a manifestation of this curved space-time, And if we take that trampoline example, let's say that you have a regular trampoline, you haven't put the bowling ball on there yet, so it's a nice flat surface, and you have a marble, and you roll the marble across the surface of the trampoline. So if there's nothing else there, and if the trampoline is level, if the surface is level, the marble should just roll in a straight line from one side of the trampoline to the other, no problem. Now let's say you put that big heavy bowling ball on the trampoline, it creates that dimple, and then you try and roll the marble across the trampoline surface. Well, now that dimple is going to end up affecting the pathway of the marble. It's going to start to spiral inward toward the bowling ball. Uh, Ultimately, it'll end up making contact with the bowling ball. And Einstein said that's essentially what gravity is. It's that you've got these large masses that curve spacetime to the extent that smaller masses are spiraling inward toward the large mass. It's just happening on a scale that's much, much, much larger than any bowling ball marble example. Uh, but that this is essentially what we see when we see planets orbiting a sun, or we see a moon orbiting a planet, or we see star systems orbiting a galaxy, uh, you know, the center of a galaxy. And uh, it's all because of this curved spacetime. Now, all of that already is pretty heavy stuff. And keep in mind, there was not really any way to directly observe this. It was mostly the the uh, you know, just just Einstein using logic to work all this out and math, logic and math, and uh, it ultimately it fit with what we saw of the universe. But we weren't able to test a lot of this. But then it gets even more mind blowing. Because now we have to get to gravitational waves. So Einstein said that if a mass were large enough and either changed shape rapidly enough or it changed its movement in some way uh really, really quickly, it would cause ripples of space-time to move outward from that event at the speed of light. And those ripples are what we call gravitational waves, which are different from gravity waves, by the way. Uh, I have been known to accidentally say gravity waves instead of gravitational waves, but the two are different things. A gravity wave is a wave that exists because of gravity. In other words, it's a physical wave of some sort of fluid system, whether it's atmosphere or, or water or some other liquid. Uh, that's a gravity wave on a planet's surface. It's not the same thing as a gravitational wave, which is really a ripple of space-time. And like I said, it moves outward from that event at the speed of light um, and stuff that could cause significant gravitational waves, things that would be big enough for us to potentially pick up here on Earth if we had the right equipment would include things like two black holes orbiting or colliding with one another, which, in fact, that was the event that we were able to pick up uh, with the LIGO facilities. And I'll talk about those in just a bit. But there could be other stuff, too, like neutron stars orbiting one another fast enough would generate uh, gravitational waves, or a supernova explosion would create one as well. And each of these events give off a huge amount of energy, and some of that energy gets converted into making these gravitational waves. So one takeaway from this prediction, something that Einstein said would happen, is that any event that produces gravitational waves is an event in which energy is being lost. So you would expect to see less energy within that system afterward than before. Uh, and it would be a hundred years from the time of publication of the, the theory of general relativity to the time when scientists announced that they had detected a gravitational wave directly. And that's because gravitational waves are devilishly difficult to detect. And that's some alliteration for you right there. So gravitational waves are invisible, uh, they don't emit any sort of electromagnetic radiation, so we can't see them. We can't detect them with radio detectors, nothing like that. Uh, and that makes it pretty tricky to figure out where they are. But they do just pass through the universe. They don't get absorbed or scattered the way electromagnetic radiation does. If you hold up a mirror and light hits the mirror, light will bounce off the mirror. That's not the case with gravitational waves. They pass right through. Uh, so... It's a very different thing than electromagnetic radiation. Um, and while they're generated from enormous events, the gravitational waves aren't very strong by the time they get to Earth. They are pretty weak, so weak that you would need an incredibly sensitive tool in order to pick them up. And also, you have to be searching at the right time, because if the event that generated the gravitational waves happened a billion years ago but the location is 4 billion light years from Earth, then we would have to wait another 3 billion years for those gravitational waves to get to us because, again, they travel at the speed of light. That's their limit. So you have to be at the right place at the right time to pick these things up. And uh, and in some cases, you might argue that that's incredibly fortuitous. Uh, although, to be fair, uh, it looks like the events that could generate gravitational waves happen pretty frequently throughout the universe. But the universe is huge. So if they're happening far away, far enough away, it'll take a very long time for that information to get to us. So before the announcement on February 11th, 2016, scientists had observed phenomena that supported the existence of gravitational waves, but were not direct observations of a gravitational wave. Uh, here's an example. A pair of astronomers in Puerto Rico in the 1970s, noticed that there was a binary pulsar system, and they went back to the theory of general relativity, because this was the sort of system that would be exactly the type to generate gravitational waves, according to the predictions from general relativity. And because general relativity predicted, hey, if it can create gravitational waves, it's going to lose energy over time, they... Ended up coming up with the hypothesis that, well, over time, this binary pulsar system should start to slow down because it's, it's losing energy. It can't keep up at the speed it's going. So they decided to keep an eye on it. And by keeping an eye on it, I mean they, they continued to observe this pulsar system over the course of eight years. And by the end of that eight year period, they were comparing the findings they were observing to the predictions made by general relativity and they were matching up. It was, ha- it was unfolding exactly the way Einstein predicted it should unfold based upon his theory of general relativity, which is incredible when you think about it, that the observations are matching up so neatly against the predictions. Uh, you know, it just shows how How keenly aware Einstein was of how our universe appears to work. Keeping in mind that general relativity, while an amazing, uh, idea, collection of ideas, really, it, it doesn't encompass everything that we know, right? It doesn't, it doesn't really address quantum mechanics, for example. At least not in a way that incorporates it with, uh, classical physics. But, Based upon what it did cover, it seems like it was an incredibly accurate theory. All right, so this was really considered strong but indirect support of gravitational waves. Because again, the astronomers didn't observe gravitational waves directly. They couldn't see them or detect them, but they could see the effects and... Again, it was matching up with the predictions made from general relativity. So it was good indirect evidence that gravitational waves existed. Then there was an event a couple of years ago that you might have heard about when uh, a a team of of researchers working on the BICEP-2 telescope, which is in Antarctica, uh, had announced that they thought they might have discovered evidence of gravitational waves that supported a hypothesis called cosmic inflation. That's a lot of information right there. So let me explain what all that means. Cosmic inflation is a hypothesis that relates to the Big Bang Theory. So with the Big Bang Theory, you've got this event in which the universe undergoes a period of rapid expansion. Cosmic inflation is kind of that rapid expansion on steroids, uh the idea being that well when we look at our universe and we look at the the what we can observe it appears that our observations don't quite match up with what we would expect if we had uh, a, a just steady expansion since the big bang in other words we look at all the information we have available to us and it looks to us that uh it doesn't quite match up something's got to be wrong Well, one possible explanation is that shortly after the Big Bang, and by shortly I mean 10 to the negative 36th power seconds after the Big Bang, so you take a 10, you put a decimal point behind the 10, then you move the decimal point to the left 36 times, then you put seconds behind that. We're talking a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second. The universe underwent massive expansion. And it only lasted from from that point to about 10 to the negative 33rd power or 32nd power seconds. So again, an instant, it's it's completely unimaginable, at least for myself, how short an amount of time this was, but that's how how quickly the universe expanded uh significantly. And then it slowed, but it continued to expand. Now, if in fact cosmic inflation is correct, it solves a lot of the problems we have between the what we observe today and what we believe happened with the Big Bang um, and reconciles those differences. If cosmic inflation is wrong, then something else that we believe is wrong, right? It means that what we observe either isn't representative of reality, somehow we're not getting a big enough picture to understand it, Or that the Big Bang Theory itself is flawed in some fundamental way. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the BICEP2 team, what they were looking for was uh, some evidence of gravitational waves that would have been generated during the Big Bang. This would end up supporting the cosmic inflation hypothesis. And the way they did this was they were looking at the cosmic microwave background, or CMB. Now, the cosmic microwave background emerged about 380,000 years after the Big Bang, Uh, this was still a period where the universe was so dense that light could not pass through it. It was dark and dense. But the cosmic microwave background formed around that time. And the hypothesis stated, well, gravitational waves would have affected the cosmic microwave background, polarizing some of those, uh, some of those particles, well, really, not particles, but some of that energy, Polarizing some of the the cosmic microwave background in such a way that if you were to uh, observe it, you could see the effect of a gravitational wave passing through the CMB. Uh, and then, as the universe expand expanded rather, uh, that that mark would also expand. It's kind of like imagine leaving a fingerprint on some sort of stretchy material, and then stretching that material out. The fingerprint is still there. It's deformed, but it's still there. That's what the BICEP-2 team was looking for, was this pattern in the CMB that would indicate that gravitational waves from the Big Bang had passed through. And if they found that, that would be a huge support for cosmic inflation. And in the spring of 2014, they announced that they believed they had found such evidence. And they also invited other researchers to take a look at their data and see if it was verifiable or maybe they overlooked something. And in the fall of 2014, another team said, we're sorry, but it looks to us like space dust might have created a false positive, that what you thought was the, the polarized CMB that you had been looking for was actually just space dust that's not actually part of the CMB. And, uh, so that ended up kind of putting a, a, a dampener on the whole celebration of finding gravitational waves to support cosmic inflation. But even if it was completely verified, even if Bicep 2 had irrefutable evidence that they had found the presence of gravitational waves through a, uh, a, you know, the, the way it affected the CMB, even then that's not direct detection. It's still indirect. You're looking at the way it's affected something else. So, uh you know again, we're still not discovering one and and part of that is that you know, bicep two is a telescope it's looking at through the electromagnetic spectrum, and again, gravitational waves don't show up that way, so no telescope would help you find a gravitational wave directly. you might be able to find how it affected something else, but not the wave itself now that's not the case with the LIGO observatories actually, it's technically one observatory, but it has four different facilities, two detectors uh, and two research facilities that are all part of the LIGO Observatory. LIGO itself is an acronym, and it stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. So it's a pair of giant detectors built on the surface of the Earth. One is located in Hanford, Washington. The other is in Livingston, Louisiana. Now, there are about... Just a little under 2,000 miles apart or just over 3,000 kilometers apart from each other. And that's really important. I'll explain why in a little bit. So to understand how they work, we also have to talk about something else that gravitational waves do as they pass through space. They stretch and compress space itself. So again, if you were to, if you were to take a piece of elastic, let's say you've got a, a rubber band, a nice thick rubber band, and uh, you cut it so that it's just one strip. When you pull on that rubber band, it stretches along the line where you're applying force. So it stretches in that direction. In the perpendicular direction, uh, 90 degrees from where you're pulling, it compresses. It gets more narrow. And then when you let it return to its normal shape... It gets you know the 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 long part ends up getting shorter, and the narrow part ends up getting wider as a result. Gravitational waves do this to reality. They do this to actual space. They stretch and compress, and it happens several times as the wave oscillates through. Or really, I should just say, as the wave passes through rather than oscillates, uh, the distortion oscillates, but the wave passes through. So that means the actual distance changes between two points uh, as that gravitational wave passes through that area. So if we were to magnify this effect, and I mean magnify it to a ludicrous degree, you would be able to see it. You would actually be able to witness this. You could stand 10 feet away from someone else, and when the gravitational wave passes through... It would make it look like the two of you suddenly got further away and then closer to each other and then further away and closer to each other even though you haven't moved anywhere because the distance itself is stretching and compressing. So why don't we see that? I mean, if these celestial events that produce gravitational waves happen on the order of something like every 15 minutes, why aren't we all noticing this wibbly-wobbly effect? (laughs) Well, it's because the actual distortion that happens here on earth is much, much, much smaller in magnitude. So much more, so much smaller that it's difficult to even explain. But if you were to have a supernova explode in the Milky Way galaxy, in our galaxy, the gravitational waves generated by that explosion would maybe be powerful enough to distort the distance between the earth and the sun by about the diameter of a hydrogen atom. So, not noticeable to any degree, <laughs> not at least to human uh, uh, senses. So if you were to even go on a smaller scale, let's say that you, you pick two points that are a kilometer apart here on the surface of the earth. The amount of distortion would be equivalent to a few thousandth of the diameter of a proton. So you're talking about a subatomic particle and just a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of that subatomic particle's diameter would be the amount of distortion that would happen across a kilometer worth of distance here on Earth. Again, that means it's so small that it's incredibly difficult to detect, so much so that Einstein himself was pretty sure we would never be able to directly detect gravitational waves because he could not imagine a system that would be sensitive enough to pick up such a minute change, a a distortion that's happening so quickly, because it's a fraction of a second, and it's so small as to be unnoticeable. So the other problem here is not just that it's such a very tiny effect that lasts a short amount of time. It's also that a lot of other stuff could create false positives, You could have incredibly sensitive uh, uh, instrumentation, but if that instrument is really, really sensitive, any sort of interference could set off and you could end up getting false readings. So a change in air pressure or temperature or seismic activity, even a heavy truck driving nearby could set off false results. So you'd have to come up with a really clever way to measure distortion, to limit vibration, and to eliminate the chance that it was a false positive. And LIGO is the answer to all of that. So the LIGO Observatory uh, is actually the result of decades of collaborative work among different scientific research centers and international bodies and universities. It all started back in 1979. That's when the National Science Foundation approved funds for Caltech and MIT to develop laser interferometer research and development. And a few years later, in 1983, Caltech and MIT submitted a proposal for a kilometer scale detector. Uh, but keep in mind, right, so 1979, you get the funding for R&D. 1983, there's the submission of a proposal for a kilometer scale detector. There wouldn't be approval for a detector until 1990, so almost a decade later and uh which turns out was probably okay because we really didn't have the the technological ability to detect things on a scale small enough to register a gravitational wave in the first place but but still you know a decades delay before you even get approval is still pretty rough construction didn't begin until 1994 the inauguration of the LIGO observatory took place in 1999 but even then, that didn't mean that the, the observatory was online collecting data. It didn't do that until 2002. And here's the kicker. Eventually, scientists came to the conclusion that this LIGO observatory was not sensitive enough to detect gravitational waves, that despite the fact that it was this large uh, detector or pair of large detectors, actually, because, again, one in Louisiana, one in Washington, It wasn't sensitive enough to be effective. So it was not quite back to the drawing board, but it did mean that they had to think about how they would upgrade these facilities so that they could be sensitive enough to pick up a gravitational wave. So in 2010, LIGO went offline to undergo a big overhaul and It took four years of construction and testing to get it into shape, and another year to set it up for new observations, which means that it wasn't until 2015 that it was ready to come back online. Uh, By now, it was called the Advanced LIGO Observatory, and it began collecting data in September 2015. Literally, days after it had come online, it picked up a gravitational wave. So that's pretty phenomenal that... Just a couple of days, just a few days, really, after it had been turned on again in 2015, we got a hit. So that was incredibly exciting. So how did this happen? How does it actually work? Well, we have to take a look at what interferometers are all about. An interferometer uses a technique in which electromagnetic waves are superimposed on one another in order to get information. Now LIGO does this with a laser beam, because it's a laser interferometer, and the laser beam gets shot through a beam splitter, and the beams, the two beams that result go down two long vacuum tubes. So both of the LIGO detectors are in an L shape. So you've got these long, long vacuum tubes that extend two and a half miles, or about four kilometers out from the crux, from the, the, the angle where they they meet up. And uh, each one is, you know, they're both the same length. They have to be exactly the same length. And the way this works is that uh, kind of behind the crux, you've got a laser that shoots out a beam of light to a beam splitter. The splitter does exactly what it sounds like it does. It splits the beam into two separate beams with, uh, with, Alternating, well, canceling wavelengths, I guess I should say. So the, the troughs and peaks on one match up with the peaks and troughs of the other. That's really important when we get a little further down the, the line here. So, one of those two beams goes down one branch of this L-shaped detector. The other beam goes down the other branch. And keep in mind, like I said, both of these branches are exactly the same length, two and a half miles or four kilometers. When the laser gets to the end, they hit uh, a mirror. Each beam hits a mirror. They come back to the point of origin. And because the two laser beams have these, uh, these counteracting wavelengths, they cancel each other out. So the peaks on one cancel out the troughs of the other, and vice versa. That means that no light gets emitted through this system. And that's important because there's actually a light detector that's part of this system as well. It's looking for any sign of laser light, because a sign of laser light would say that something has changed. Somehow the distances between these or the distances represented by these two vacuum tubes has changed, and that would be indicative of an event like a gravitational wave moving through. So if any light shines through, you know something has happened. Uh, Essentially, it says that there's a mismatch in the lengths of the vacuum tubes themselves. So when a gravitational wave passes through, one vacuum tube will get shorter while the other gets longer and that's because the two tubes are offset by 90 degrees. So one is going to be along one side of the wave, and that will lengthen. The other will be along, uh, will be perpendicular to that and will shorten as a result. And this means that the lasers will have different distances to travel down. So the laser traveling the shorter distance takes less time to get back to the crux. The laser going down the longer distance takes more time. And even though this is only happening within a fraction of a second, it's long enough for us to be able to detect the difference. And it also means that those wavelengths don't match up anymore. They don't cancel each other out anymore. So some of that laser light gets emitted to the light detector, which then indicates what's going on. You know, it knows which, which one of the branches was short versus long. It knows how long it happened. It knows how much it oscillated back and forth, because obviously this is continuing as, these, uh, as the gravitational wave moves through. So you collect a lot of data in a short amount of time. And we're talking like teeny tiny slices of a second as we're getting all this information, which is pretty incredible. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So once you get all that data, you can then analyze it. Actually, more importantly, before you analyze it, you have to verify it. Now, this is why it's important that there are two detectors. And it's also important that they are so far apart, like 3,000 kilometers apart from each other. That's because if you get a blip on one of them, if it's a true gravitational wave, you should also get a blip on the other one. And because gravitational waves move at the speed of light, there should be a slight difference in time when both detectors pick up on this gravitational wave, somewhere right around 10 milliseconds or less. In the case of the one that was detected back in uh, the fall of 2015, but not announced until 2016, it hit the Louisiana detector first, and seven milliseconds later, it hit the Washington detector So that was indicative of something like a gravitational wave, as opposed to some local event that would have caused interference and created a false positive. If an earthquake had happened in Washington, then the facility may have may have picked something up, but you wouldn't expect to see it in Louisiana, because it was a localized event. Same thing is true if something had happened in Louisiana. So by seeing it happen at both within this 10 millisecond time frame meant that it was a very good candidate for a gravitational wave passing through. And that's exactly what happened. Um, it was a home run in the first inning of the game, or even really the first at-bat of the game. It's like your first player steps up on the first day of baseball and knocks a home run, and that defines the moment, the, the season, really. That's, that's the equivalent of what we saw here on a scientific basis. Uh, so... The the other thing I wanted to talk about was how LIGO tries to minimize the possibility of detecting a false positive in the first place. So yeah, false positives are something that that they worry about, and the fact that there are two detectors helps minimize that. But even so, you want to eliminate the possibility of a false positive so that you're not constantly sifting through noise looking for a signal. You want to minimize noise as much as possible. So LIGO does this through using combinations of active and passive uh, re- vibration reduction systems. One thing that they do is they remove the air from the tubes. That's why they're vacuum tubes. They remove the air for two reasons. Uh, one, they don't want any sound passing through the chambers. Sound could possibly interfere with the measurements. Sound would impact the mirrors. And even a small impact would be enough to cause a problem when you're measuring this laser. For one thing, they're looking at distances when they're measuring the changes between the two branches. You know, I mentioned that one's getting longer, one's getting smaller. The distances they're looking at are very, very tiny. We're talking 10 to the negative 19th power meters. So again, you take the number 10, you move a decimal place 19 times to the left of that. And you put meters at the end. That's the, the distance that these lasers are uh, are measuring, the distortion in distance. So it's very, very, very tiny. And something as simple as sound could change that. So you can't have any sound in these vacuum tubes. You've got to get the air out. Uh, also, air can absorb and, uh, and, and scatter laser light, which would interfere with the experiment as well. So you've got to get air out. Now on to the vibration reduction systems. So the active isolation system is meant to weed out the majority of vibration, and it's active because it is actively working against any vibration it encounters. You've got sensors that detect vibration. They send commands to force actuators that move in opposition to the vibration. So it's kind of like noise-canceling headphones. If you if you put on a pair of noise-canceling headphones, what they're supposed to do is pick up any incoming sound and then generate sound waves that are in direct opposition of the incoming sound so that you get a cancellation effect. That's the same thing that these active systems are trying to do at LIGO, except instead of it just being sound, it's really any vibration. Although I guess you could argue that any vibration really is sound. So it's kind of a moot point, but anyway, they're actively trying to counteract that vibration. But then you've got the passive system. This is the suspension system for the mirrors. And this is, you know, the next step. So you, you've eliminated a huge percentage of the vibration at this point, but that's not good enough. You need to eliminate as much, as close to a hundred percent of the vibration as you possibly can. So. Next we look at the suspension system of LIGO's mirrors. And they are at the base of a four pendulum system. Meaning, imagine you've got a string and it ends in a, in a pendulum, a weight, a mass of some sort. And it has to be a mass of significant size so that it will, it'll, um, resist moving. It's the law of inertia. You know, uh, uh, an object at rest tends to stay at rest. So it will end up absorbing a lot of vibration and minimizing it on the other end. So you've got that first pendulum. That's pendulum number one. From that, you suspend pendulum number two. So already you're getting fewer vibrations because pendulum number one is picking them up. What vibrations do manage to pass through start to get picked up by pendulum number two. And again, the law of inertia means that it uh, it will dampen a lot of that vibration. Then you've got pendulum number three. And then beneath that, you finally have the mirror, which is 40 kilograms, or about 88 pounds worth of mirror. Uh, and hopefully, after the active and passive systems have all taken care of the vibration, nothing else is getting to that mirror. By the way, you can actually test this out yourself, if you like, by... Uh, getting four strings that are all equal length and some washers, some nice heavy washers, tie a washer at the end of, uh, of the string of the first string, then tie uh, a washer. Um, so that one end of the string connects to washer. Number one, one end of the string connects to washer number two and so on and so forth. And if you hold it up, and you start shaking your hand holding the string. You'll notice that the washer at the top moves more than the second washer, which moves more than the third. And by the time you get down to the fourth one, it's not moving much at all because it's been, the vibrations have been dampened by the previous pendulums. And that's the principle of this passive system. So that helps eliminate a lot of that vibration. Uh, without those dampening systems in place, the two LIGO detectors would be picking up a lot of noise. And since we're still not really sure how often gravitational waves pass through the Earth, that would be a problem. Now, between 2002 and 2010, with the early version of LIGO, they didn't pick up any gravitational waves at all, which we think is because the detectors weren't sensitive enough. We think that's the reason. But an alternative reason could be that gravitational waves aren't as frequent as we think they are, that they don't pass through the Earth as frequently as we might otherwise believe. Um, however, the opposite could be true. We could have way more gravitational waves passing through Earth than we had anticipated. Some of them may be so faint that even this advanced LIGO system cannot pick it up. There are already plans to upgrade LIGO again, and there are other LIGO observatory systems that will uh, that are in development now that will also listen in for gravitational waves. And listen tends to be the way most people refer to it. Like you're listening for this universal vibration moving through the earth so because it was only a few days after they it came online a lot of people are thinking that gravitational waves are probably fairly common otherwise it was just extraordinarily lucky that we picked it up just days after the the observatory was online again the one that we did pick up was 1.3 billion light years away, which means that the event happened 1.3 billion years ago. That event being two black holes colliding with one another to form a solitary black hole mass. In the, uh, in the process, it vaporized about three solar masses worth of, of mass, I guess, uh, which is a huge amount to think about being converted into energy. And the gravitational waves uh, emanated from there at the speed of light. So 1.3 billion years later, Earth, which was 1.3 billion light years away, picked them up. So in a way, it was incredibly lucky. But if this happens more frequently than we um, we originally believed, we might see that this is not an uncommon event. It's very possible that there are things we cannot see in the universe that create gravitational waves. So in other words, it's stuff that does not give off electromagnetic radiation at all, but it does create gravitational waves, meaning that we now have the capacity to detect things that otherwise would have remained completely undetectable by us. It's one of the many reasons why this discovery is so exciting. It opens up brand new science. It creates a new discipline of science, gravitational astronomy, which can really get going now because it's not that different from when the telescope was invented. Before the telescope, astronomy was pretty limited. You could map out astrological bodies, you know, when you were way back in the day before the science of astronomy had really gotten going. Once you started figuring out the difference between mythology and science, then astronomy really takes over. You could map out where these different bodies go. You could uh, figure out which ones are, must be planets versus stars, but you couldn't really gather a lot more information than that. You could still get a, a, an impressive amount of data just from observing with the naked eye. But the telescope opened up a whole new world of study. And this gravitational wave detector system has opened up a similar all-new world that was not accessible by us until this year, well, really late last year, late 2015, so we might end up discovering things that we've never been able to observe before. Uh, we'll also likely be able to study all sorts of cool stuff, like how fast is the universe expanding? How much dark energy is in our universe? We might learn more about black holes. Uh, already, the gravitational wave detected by, the, by LIGO has given us the strongest direct evidence of black holes. Um, well, I guess I should say indirect evidence because it's the gravity waves generated by the black holes. But uh, not that we ever doubted the existence of black holes, but this is yet more evidence in support of them. So it's really an exciting time. We could end up learning all sorts of stuff, stuff that we can't even anticipate right now. And that's why it's such a big deal. Uh, I also think that LIGO is just an incredibly elegant way of detecting something that otherwise is impossible for us to see or feel or experience. And it's incredibly simple, at least on the the principle of it. The technology itself is very complicated because it has to be so sensitive to detect these very tiny changes in distance and time. But the principle behind it is elegant, And, I mean, you don't get much more simple than a 90-degree angle. That's pretty bare bones there. But a very clever way of detecting something that Einstein believed was going to be beyond our ability to ever experience. So, now we have a revolutionary new way to examine the universe. We have no way of knowing what sort of stuff we might learn as a result, which is incredibly exciting. And... It's all due to some lasers, some beam splitters, and some mirrors. And since we're already looking at lots of different organizations building their own LIGO observatories and uh, also increasing the capacity or or at least the sensitivity of the current LIGO system, who knows what we're going to see next. I'm so excited about this stuff. But guys, I want to hear from you what you want to... You know, hear more about on future episodes of Tech Stuff. I've got a couple of things in the hopper. Uh, I've got a couple of special guests that lined up for the near future, so you should be getting some pretty cool episodes pretty soon. And I also want to examine uh, one topic. I'm probably going to try and get one of the stuff they don't want you to know, guys, to come in here with me to talk about backdoor uh, access to things like uh, encryption systems and why was that such a big deal? And why did Apple respond the way it did? And why should we be happy about it? <laughs> because I think that's a really important topic. And uh, I would love to get them on the show, or at least one of them on the show, to kind of talk about it. So keep an ear out for that as well. If you have any suggestions for future topics, please get in touch with me. Let me know what you would like to hear. The email address for this show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. And I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.